When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the latest episode of The Shamrock. I'm Pete Sampson, joined as always by my host, Matt Fortuna, who is neither a narcissist nor should be slapped. Um, We'll get into some of those comments today. Um, Got Notre Dame State of the Program running on Monday. I had a story last week sort of on advice for Marcus Freeman from other coaches who were uh, first-time head coaches at the Power 5 level. Uh, We can get into that. But um, Matt, I mean, you're... Your story with Bruce and Brody, who is our LSU writer, who's we've gifted the Brian Kelly experience to uh, in the last six months. Man, that was uh, that was something. At, um, I was trying to think of like the, what the best Notre Dame head coach feud was. I think it, you had to go back to like Charlie Weiss and Pete Carroll and some snarky comments on Weiss's oh, yeah. way out of town, but uh, and maybe Brian Kelly and Derek Mason play fighting. Uh, in a press conference after a game, but that was, that was about it. Nothing quite at the same in Jimbo level. Yeah, look at, look into Pete Sampson's history of reporting listeners, look into how he does his business and how he gets his sources. Okay. Uh, that's all I'll say about that. Do some digging. Uh, oh my goodness. Jimbo. Um, sliced bread has set the world ablaze. <laughs> it wasn't just our friend Lunani. It was Nick Saban. It was everyone who's apparently um, run away with this story and turned it into, in my opinion, one of the most, fascinating off-season stories I think we've ever had. I mean, I probably like in the 60s and 70s when, you know, the media wasn't what it was now. There were coaches who weren't afraid to tell you how they really felt about each other publicly. But, man, like two guys, two national championship winners who worked together and who as recently as, you know, was it four years ago, I'm standing outside the Alabama locker room after they win it all and who's waiting there for an hour to say congratulations, Nick uh, Jimbo Fisher. Like these guys were – They've been in some battles together and now they're battling each other. And, and some of those accusations that are going back and forth, I mean, you, you could take this a number of different directions, but I just, I was fascinated by the entire episode. I mean, which, you know, is only going to get better next week when they all gather in Destin, Florida for SEC spring meetings. And Brian Kelly is going to be there thinking, what the hell did I get myself into? <laughs> I thought Clark Lee is going to be there wondering. Clark what the Lee, yeah, right. Lane Kiffin. I mean, Mike Matt Leach. Lee. Is is something else? I mean, <laughs> it was. I mean, I was surprised. Nick's like Nick Saban never speaks or says anything publicly without a purpose or without some calculation behind it. Uh, and I think a lot of the times when he complains about something publicly, that's more of a like, okay, do you want to do this? Because I'll do it and I'll do it better than all of you, and you're all going to hate me for it after. Whether it's hurry up, no huddle offense, or or what have you. Um, but, but for him to name names like that was very out of character for him. It makes you wonder if maybe he's a little more like Dabo Swinney than he lets on publicly as far as how he feels about the current state of affairs and how much longer he's going to keep doing this. Um, but Jimbo Fisher, <laughs> like as much as I appreciate the content machine that he's provided all of us by calling a, an impromptu press conference and basically saying God does 
his business dirty and, you know, he needs to be slapped and yada, yada, yada. You know, you're basically daring all of us to look into how you got those classes at LSU, Jimbo, because if you want to go down Nick Saban's recruiting history, that means going down Jimbo Fisher's recruiting history. And there was another um, TV report that came out last night from a San Antonio station where Jimbo just basically starts accusing the TV interviewer of, of making stuff up. And I don't think the reporter had any idea what he was even talking about, but it's, it's going to be interesting next week. Cause you know, unlike most spring meetings, there's a podium there. There's Paul Feinbaum, there are scheduled public appearances that these coaches need to make um, on behalf of the sec. And, it, and as much as we've heard, Greg Sankey is sort of privately told these guys to shut up and, and be nice to each other publicly. Um, they're all going to get asked about it. And, and, you know, some of them, Lane Kiffin among them, probably won't be able to keep their thoughts to themselves once the uh, microphone or the red light is on. So I think he can't um, wait to give his thoughts on the matter. <laughs> I want to hear Brian Mike Kelly's Leach thoughts too. on this. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, Brian Kelly, it's uh, made a joke last week. Like, you know, Brian Kelly talked about he wanted to coach in the AL East and he is, in fact, coaching in the WWE. Like, that's <laughs> it. The SEC is just absolutely insane. And I'm in it, but I'm already looking ahead to like, all right, October 8th, I'm going to be in Vegas. Like, can I still watch Alabama AM? Like, are there going to be conflicting kickoff times? Like, could we go? Ahead I don't think game day is going to be in Vegas for Notre Dame BYU after. No, no, I don't think so. I, I will be there. Um, that's that's no problem. But uh, yeah. And you, you better put a hell of a lot of money on whatever the spread is for Alabama if you're there because <laughs> I, it would, yeah, it's pretty much Alabama minus anything for that one. Um, it's yeah, it's just fascinating to watch how uh, maybe I should have called Jimbo Fisher for my first time coach head coaches at the power five level um, story. Maybe maybe he would have some advice uh, for Marcus Freeman on how to comport yourself as a first time head coach. But um, you won a national champion on a championship on like other than Bob Stoops. Anyone else you talked to for that story? <laughs> well, I mean, Dabo did. Um, did you talk to uh, him? No, I didn't. But okay. um, yeah, no, just in terms of like, I was surprised pivoting to that story a little bit, how um, essentially it's half and half in the playoff era of the coaches who have made the playoff. How many of them were first time head coaches at their power five job uh, when they did Ryan day, Bob Stoops, Mark Helfrich, which is like kind of forgotten to history a little oh, bit. Yeah. My doppelganger. <laughs> yeah. Jimbo at Florida state uh, Dabo six times, Lincoln Riley, three times Kirby smart twice. Uh, you know, the nose were D'Antonio, Chris Peterson, Brian Kelly, Nick Saban, Luke Fickle, technically, uh, because he's a group of five coach and he was a year at Ohio State, uh, and then Urban, and then Jim Harbaugh as well. And of course, it's fine. Coach, o, coach o, who initially I wrote on the, the first time yeah. coach, I completely <laughs> forgot he was at Ole Miss. For How could you forget that? And USC. Um, it's funny, the nose there might be a more impressive collection. Than the yeses, as, as far as like overall body work and, and yeah, I mean, well, I mean, they're all he, good. The Saban Meyer combo is is pretty impressive. Um, yeah, that's good. You know, Dabo Kirby. Eventually, I would think we'll get there. You know, Stoops. His track record is very impressive. Um, you know, one thing that I didn't get this in the story because I sort of ran out of space a little bit and I couldn't weave it in. But I, I, I talked to Stoops a little bit about sort of managing your staff because. He was a big, like, sort of have your family around the facility, which Marcus is right. that way a lot. Uh, and he's just like, yeah, this is – I never had a staff meeting before 845 because I wanted to take my kids to school every day, hmm. which I did. And, you know, if we've got 
a family and the mom's got an appointment, you know, and the dad needs to sort of hang with the kid, come to the office, you know, can be in staff meetings, no problem. And then he's just like, everyone pretends like we're writing nuclear codes here. Um, <laughs> and he's like, it's just not that way, you know? So I, I think the fact that he took his, it took himself perhaps less seriously than people would have thought based on his personality back right. then, you know, his personality now, I mean, you and I saw him walking around with a glass of red wine, I think in Scottsdale a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, he's, uh, he's definitely, a, I think a little bit more laid back than he ever was while he was the head coach. But I, I just thought it was interesting to hear how guys sort of were in various stages of, yeah, you take the job and you think you have it figured out and you don't. Um, and only time will help you get there, which is, you know, I think that's going to be a big part of the Marcus Freeman Notre Dame story this fall is like, where does he need time the most? Because the idea that he's just going to be sort of box ready head coach is, is pretty unrealistic. I mean, nobody has figured out life as a football coach or as a post-football coach better than Bob Stoops. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he did seem pretty surly when he was in the heat of it, but he got out you know, at, a, at an opportune time and was talking to someone who worked at Oklahoma at the time recently who basically said, like, Bob Stoops got out when he did because he knew that the program was in really good shape and he thought Lincoln Riley had a chance to win a national championship in his first year, which he almost did. Um, but, yeah, we saw him a couple weeks ago. Um, I was in Norman in April. He's just hanging out of practice, watching this kid um, play for his former defensive coordinator, Brent Venables, from when they won it all back in 2000. Um, he did the XFL thing for a little bit, which, you know, you coach ball, you don't recruit. Um, it seems, you know, among football coaching jobs, like a lighter lift. He's got his own tequila company. He got into the Hall of Fame this year and coached basically, you know, I don't want to say saved Oklahoma, but like really rallied the troops when, when Lincoln Riley left for USC yep. and stunned everyone in Norman. And really, I think, you know, if it was 1A, 1B between Barry Switzer and Bob Stoops, as far as, you know, Q ratings in Norman, they're on the same plane right now. I mean, that guy's just just got it made. And he's got it figured out. And he's only like 60 years old. I mean, he's the same age as a lot of the guys who are still in the heat of it. Um, and, and is a great guy to 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 hear from, because like you said, I mean, you've heard the stories in the past. You know, he was a family man. He didn't burn the midnight oil the way some of his peers did. Um, and he obviously had an incredible amount of success while at Oklahoma and is a great resource, I think, for for a lot of people. Um, in the business right now. It was a you know, really good story you wrote talking to him, Jeff Halfley, Tom Allen, Clark Lee, um, Shane Beamer. Uh, Clark Lee was enlightening to me as far as you know him getting into the depths of his poison demeanor and how he had to wear a different hat depending on the situation for his team. Because you know, from our experiences with him at Notre Dame, um, you know, you're talking about a guy who, you know, you never know whether they're coming off a 20-point loss or a 20-point win. He's just very controlled um, and kind of unemotional at all points. And, and he talked about how that kind of bit him early on when, when they're getting killed by an FCS team and they need more energy, they need more firepower and he starts headbutting his team and, 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 you know, reaches their level, so to speak, emotionally. Um, Tom Allen, I, I, I cannot believe he's naive enough, whether he's a head coach or an assistant coach or anyone associated with any opposing university to think that his comments saying JT Barrett is not an accurate passer weren't going to blow up on him. That was on the after the game, which I remember going into that game. That was the first game post Kevin Wilson, who I believe just got hired as Ohio state's offense coordinator that game. And I just remember thinking, Oh my God, there's a great Ohio state team. They're going to come out and win this game by, you know, 30, 40 points, whatever the line is, you know, at Ohio State. 
And then Tom Allen says what he says after, which seems out of character for him. I don't know him personally, but you know, everyone talks about him as the Ted Lasso of college football. I did not expect to see those words come out of his mouth, especially in a situation like that one. Um, and then you get to Marcus Freeman's, you know, mistakes or, or errors in judgment for, for lack of a better term early on, whether it was the player's tribune shot, he took it Ohio state, um, you know, some of the game management stuff late in the first half against um, Oklahoma state when, you know, I think head coaches, you know, they, their voices grow as they grow into those jobs. And, you know, we've heard coaches, you know, over a number of years at different places, tell us stories to that effect of, Hey, we went for it. We went for this. Then we took this risk at this point in the game because we knew we were going to be without so-and-so, or we knew our defense was gassed or whatever it is. And, and certainly hindsight's 2020, you look back at that, that Fiesta bowl, um, three timeouts and a 14 point lead. You don't think anything of it with Notre Dame to take a knee and go into the second half or excuse me, run the ball and go into the second half with a lead. Um, but certainly, you know, I think it's Marcus Freeman goes into a, a more of a head coaching role. Um, you know, it will be on him to say like, Tommy Reese, I know you don't think this is a high leverage situation, but you don't know what I know about this defense and we need to score right. as many points as we need to right now. That was, that was pretty interesting to me. Um, yeah. I, I liked talking to Jeff Halfley, who I think is a pretty impressive head coach who's kind of on the rise in the industry, but um, he talked about how, you know, the first couple of years, you know, he's, he's a defensive guy. He's in the defensive coordinator room with uh, Tem Luku. Temlakubu, uh, pretty much all the time. Like he's got to be in the meetings almost of, as if he's like the assistant defensive coordinator. And how like over time you you ha- you kind of have to stop doing that uh, if you're going to be a full head coach. And now he's got enough um, trust in Lukubu, who was I think a, a name that was bandied about for the Notre Dame DC mm-hmm. job that went to Al Golden. But um, you know now he's able to sort of get out of those meeting rooms, recruit manage the program, do big picture stuff, sit in meetings with John McNulty, who's now their new OC, um, you know, and then he's got, you know, trust in your staff was sort of a theme there because you can't be everywhere all the time. And you, something's got to give in terms of your time, but also you want to build enough trust somewhere where you can give that time up. Um, and so Halfley felt like, you know, I really have grown as a head coach that way. And i I think that was probably something that Freeman struggled a little bit with the Fiesta Bowl last year. Is like you're trying to be everything. I think Freeman's point of view was like, you know, I'm I'm going to give up the defense now to to Elston and you know do all this recruiting stuff, do all these meetings, be the head coach. Um, and in some ways, I feel like probably it was. I don't. I don't want to say jumping the gun, but like maybe doing that a, a, a beat too early. So I'll be interested to sort of see if he adjusts that a little bit with Al Golden running the defense this fall. If if Freeman is going to be more defensive centric first, and then get into the meeting rooms with Reese later in the season. And one other thing, Halfley mentioned, which Freeman has echoed, is just like something is mundane is like where to stand in practice. Halfley's just like I want to be with the DBs. I'm a DB guy. Um, but you know, if you're a head coach, you can't just hang out with one position because you're comfortable there. You got to be all over the place. So people get to know you. Yeah. Marcus Freeman is spoken about that. I know he spoke about it at the, uh, Chicago club event I was at. And I, I feel like I've heard him say this, you know, multiple times in other settings, um, going into practice, the defense coordinator, you want to beat the offense and win yeah. the day. 
that doesn't do anything for you as the head coach right now because you've got stakes on both sides of it. It reminds me, you know, a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm doing a kind of a follow up story um, for tomorrow, hopefully on you know Jimbo Fisher, Nick Saban, the whole mentor mentee relationship and how those things always seem to to fall by the wayside. Uh, as you saw, if you read our story, like that was a real thing. Jimbo Fisher was an offensive coordinator at LSU trying to win. And Nick Saban was a head coach who was a defensive guy who wanted to limit what in script, what the offense could do every day. And Jimbo was always trying to prove himself. I mean, there's a long history throughout pretty much every sport uh, of people butting heads this way. I mean, Mike Dick, a buddy, Ryan, um, it turned into a, I'm going to coach the offense. You coach the defense. We don't, we're not going to talk to each other. We don't like each other, but we're so damn good as a team. We're going to win anyway. And that's exactly what happened um, with the 85 bears. But, you know, I keep coming back to, I feel like we've heard so many different coaches, leaders, ADs, you name it throughout any sector, always say something to the effect of like, there's, there's no guaranteed path to success, but there is a guaranteed way to fail. And that's to try to please everybody. Um, and you know, that that's just something that's only learned, um, with experience. I am curious, you know, to, to, to harp on this story. Did you by chance reach out to Dave Aranda? And I asked that because I, I don't know the guy, but he had a really, really rough first year at Baylor yes. and completely turned it around in year two. And I just think that's got to be a guy with a lot of knowledge to share. I did. Um, the two guys that I didn't get for it that I wanted were Mel Tucker and Aranda um, and Tucker. I just couldn't get it scheduled. Aranda, I reached out, didn't hear anything back. So I just like rolled with the guys that I have. But it's interesting that you mentioned sort of like the Fisher Saban dynamic and an OC trying to prove himself when he's working for a defensive coordinator or a defensive head coach. And that was one thing Allen talked about and Halfley talked about. I didn't really get this in the story a lot. I didn't make the point as much as I wanted to was the notion of your own guys, guys, because right. Allen was just like, you know, I didn't really understand the quote unquote hit your own guys when I was an assistant, but now I totally do. Uh, and Halfley and I talked a little bit about that and his, his quote was kind of interesting there, which I think, I think fits into Freeman a little bit when it comes to Brian Mason and Al Washington and Mike Mickens and Jared Parker. Parker. Um, he says, uh, we were talking about, so he said, it was very important for me. This is Halfley. Very important for me to get the guys that I trusted and, and that would be loyal and that would treat people the right way. That would treat the players the right way in my vision of that. So the staff came together pretty well. Um, and then he said, I was able to do that because I've been on staffs that that wasn't the case and guys have hidden agendas. Guys, you're saying one thing and they're saying another. That was important to me uh, to get these people surrounding me. You know, me and the team would speak the same language and treat people the way I would expect to be treated. Like, I think Notre Dame has had some staffs over the years where they've had sort of competing agendas um, that I think Brian Kelly in some ways tolerated or ignored. Um, and, but I think lately they, they haven't, I mean, I wrote a big story on the Clark Lee, Tommy Reese relationship before the Clemson game in 2020. Um, and I think I talked to Bill Reese, Tommy's dad, who's in scouting at Notre Dame about that. He's just like, there is a 100% you can have, a reality where you have a, two coordinators that don't like each other and are out to screw each other uh, on a day-to-day basis on the practice field. And the team really suffers for that. So, you know, I, I, I think that Freeman and Reese grew to have a good relationship last year. Um, I would think that Reese and Golden would get along just fine too. Uh, I don't know if they have any sort of shared history over the years. They're both 
been in the business for a long, long time. Um, I mean, Brees played quarterback against Golden's Miami team. Golden was almost his head coach if Brian Kelly yeah. turned the job down. Exactly. Um, but just how important that was. I think that's it's kind of one of those aspects of covering college football that you never really know. It's kind of hard to drill down on that. Um, but you certainly know it when it's gone bad. And in retrospect, I think you can look back and tell when it's good. I mean, Norton won a bunch of games when it was Chip Long and Clark Lee and they were, they were close, but I don't think they were necessarily like-minded. Um, but Reese and Clark certainly were, and I'll be interested to sort of see how Golden and, and Reese get along as well. I feel like in, in some ways, not to toot our own horn, but the athletic has kind of become a go-to place for this where you don't realize it in real time till you know, the season's over and you go back and talk to people and, and look at everything with the benefit of hindsight, but like how many takeout pieces have been on our site of um, the Chicago bears or Florida state, or, you know, some team that just had a terrible year. And after the season, you do a postmortem on them and you realize this coach didn't like this coach or this coach wasn't recruiting. And this player was a probably, you know, the Seattle Seahawks, right. They should have been a dynasty um, in the NFL. And, you know, they had a great run and they won a super bowl, but like they could never get over the fact that, you know, through the defense's eyes, Russell Wilson was coddled and he cost them a chance at another Super Bowl while the defense was carrying, you know, too big of a burden, however you want to spin it. There's so many situations and stories like this. I mean, we, you know, the number of things me and you probably heard post-2016 after Brian Van Gorder got fired and after everyone else got fired about how <laughs> that season that we all thought they were a top 10 team coming into had so many blind spots. Um, you know, it, it just makes sense afterward. I mean, you know, you mentioned coordinators tolerating each other. I mean, some of those early Brian Kelly staffs at, at Notre Dame um, were not exactly the most harmonious groups in the world, which made some seasons like 2012 um, even more of a, I mean, the more and more me and you talk to people from that 2012 team, as improbable as it was in real time, it sounds even more improbable every time we learn a new layer to that <laughs> every time to Chuck, personalities. Chuck Martin answers the phone, it sounds more improbable. Uh, but yeah, I think that's yeah, it's funny. I, I think it was in a, the mailbag comments for from last week or a couple of weeks ago, but uh, I was, I think it was joking around about, uh, or maybe it was on Twitter about how I've always sort of had a soft spot for an oral history on the 2007 Notre Dame UCLA game. Um, and then somebody's <laughs> like, all yours. <laughs> I was like, somebody mentioned like, I, what I really want to read is an oral history on the 2016 NC State game. And I was like, you know what? That might that might be something interesting down the road. I don't. You did. You weren't there for that one, right? I got, I stayed dry and watched that one uh, on TV gladly. For the, best. Um, <laughs> the, the the fifteen Showtimes ones one we got to do. Oh, talk to the because that was a really good team with a lot of great personalities who will talk and who had cameras following them like to the bathroom. I mean, it was pretty intrusive. <laughs> uh, and then sixteen, it all falls apart, but. Yeah, there's there's no shortage of, of of stories like that, and no shortage of people willing to talk now that all the principals are, are kind of off to other pastures. That's um, a good point. We may uh, we may be entering a target rich environment for uh, quotes about uh, the previous coaching staffs now. <laughs> Perhaps we should take advantage of that, Malik Zaire. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Deshaun Kaiser, what's he up to these days? He's still in the NFL, right? Unclear, but uh, yeah, I've tried to reach out to him for previous stories without any luck, but perhaps now, uh, perhaps now that would change. I don't know. The, the one I've, I've tried endlessly 
for years and I've had people very close to him encourage him to talk to me and he still hasn't talked to me or anyone is Everett Golson. Just as oh, far as yeah. like a career that like could not have started off any more promising then takes some incredible sideways turns, then looks like it's going to be a redemption story, then kind of falls off the rails. Um, that one to me is just like the, every good and bad, you know, kind of aspect of the Brian Kelly era, if you will, like he kind of lived out or embodied, you know, the highs of the highs, really the highs of the highs, the lowest of the lows and everything in between. Uh, not sure what he's doing these days, but Everett, if you're listening, <laughs> give us a call. Uh Let's, so today was state of the program day uh, on the athletic. We've already run Clemson with Grace Landis or Grace Landis, uh, Grace Rayner, <laughs> Ohio State with Bill Landis uh, and Antonio Morales, my three on three partner from the athletic summit uh, did. And if you were into Vanderbilt, Joe Rexroad, who was my other three on three partner from the athletic summit. All I those watched all these games <clears throat> from the comforts of the sideline. It was like 100 degrees in Scottsdale. Uh, I took pity on everyone playing by not interviewing them or recording a podcast <laughs> after because it was pretty brutal out there. The dominant performance from the Morales Rex Road Sampson trio. I'm just just gonna say, uh, but Notre Dame. I don't. If you're a hardcore Notre Dame fan, I doubt that you came away like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. But <laughs> a couple interesting things to me um, with the the opposing coach stuff. I think is always fascinating to do uh, and to read. That's like I. I'm guilty of scrolling straight to that basically in every state of the program that we do. Um, the takeaways from that very high on Buckner. This was a ACC coordinator, very high on Buckner, very high on Blake Fisher, like could not be higher on Blake Fisher felt he might be, he could go down as like an all time Notre Dame offensive lineman. And that, but very dubious about Logan Diggs, which was, was just like, uh, kind of like a, I'm not sure if I'm seeing it vibe with Diggs. Um, you know, pointed out what did he really do after he hurdled the guy at Virginia? We were both there to see that. Um, I think the answer is kind of not a whole lot. Now he's got the shoulder injury. Um, so a lot, a lot rides on Buckner, which is not that surprising. And then to get some statistical perspective on the offensive line about how bad they were in short yardage that, Last year, Notre Dame running backs were averaging 0.1 yards per carry before contact in short yardage situations, um, which is why Kyron Williams was the MVP of that team, uh, despite the fact that you know he wasn't the draft pick of Kyle Hamilton, wasn't the draft pick of where Foskey or Mayer will go next year, but um, he was the one that bailed out that offense in so many times. Yeah, I'm going to contradict myself a little bit here because you know, the, the, the digs comments were enlightening and I say, I'm going to contradict myself because everything you just said about Kyron Williams, I echo and agree. Like we saw what a difference a single running back can make both in the offense and in the locker room as a whole. But I, I, I preface with all that to say, I, Logan Diggs is just another guy. I, I don't look at that. I mean, look, it'd be better for Notre Dame if he was great, but I just think they've got enough, capable bodies at that position. Um, like people seem to forget Chris Tyree's on the roster and he was pretty damn close to a five-star prospect when he came aboard in yeah. 2019. Audrey guesstimate showed a lot of flashes down the stretch last year of what he can be. And if you've ever spent any time around the guy, he's, you know, 
20 going on 40. He's incredibly mature. Um, Jadarian Price turned a lot of heads this spring. I'm not saying expect the world of him from day one as a true freshman, but I think he's a guy that they're hoping can make a difference this year on the field. So I think when you combine those three guys, um, add or subtract digs to the, digs to the mix and, and have what's going to be a better offensive line, they're still sorting out what that will look like. Um, I'm just not as concerned about the run game. And here I go again, contradicting myself again. The, the, the most enlightening part from a purely statistical standpoint um, is when you go to the returning production. And if I were to, this, this was an interactive podcast. I said, anyone want to raise your hand and say, who's their <laughs> inter- leading returning rusher? We still need to have one of those interactive podcasts. We do in person, maybe in Columbus for a night game. Ooh, absolutely. Um, Tyler Buckner, 336 yards. Um, he's also obviously their leading returning passer at 298 yards, which makes up for 14% of their entire passing game last year. So, um, you know, you, you could look at those numbers, those two specifically, and think, you know, the, the, there's a lot to prove and, and you wouldn't be wrong. Um, I just also think, you know, as long as Buckner's healthy, yeah, I, I haven't heard any. The closest thing to a criticism I've heard of the guy is he hasn't spent all that time 100% in consecutive months at Notre Dame, um, which you know, it was another way of saying you're a college football player and a dual threat college football player in 2022. Um, the offensive line is going to be better. I don't think there's any question about that. And I, I have faith in the running backs, regardless of Diggs' status, uh, to, to think that at the very least, they're going to be a much more productive unit on the ground this year. That was, I think, one of the interesting parts that this coach told me about the offensive line. His point of view was like, he didn't know Harry Heastan at all, but felt like, this line was going to be better anyway. Like he stand will help, but felt like the biggest thing was sophomore Blake Fisher, sophomore Joe Walt. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that may make a huge difference for Notre Dame. Cause he's just like, he's sort of a believer in that year one to year two growth for, for an offensive lineman. I get it. I don't, I don't, it may be a cliche, but it's also true. So I, you know, overall, I, you've written this, I've written this, it's so much, it sort of ties into the first time head coach discussion and story that I had last week is, you know, how much of, how much of a difference does a coach make? Um, you know, if, if you could have last year's staff on this year's team, I would tend to think that that would be a more likely college football playoff team than a first time head coach. However, if you look at this recruiting versus where recruiting was before, there is no doubt that Notre Dame has improved as a program from where it was a year ago. So it's um, it's sort of a how quickly can Marcus Freeman stop being a first-year head coach and just be a head coach? Yeah, the, the final assessment part, yours, I think, trended on the longer end because a lot of these, frankly, um, you know, is just summing up everything we already read before. And then here, Notre Dame has to be a referendum on everything. All well, times, it be, but It's also... In- Interesting that we're talking about a power five program with a mostly entirely new coaching staff. And yet we're so intimately familiar with pretty much the entire personnel on the roster. I mean, you're not reading about USC or or even Oklahoma um, without coming away with a lot of intrigue about, Oh, who's going to play at this position. I wonder if this quarterback's going to be good, et cetera, et cetera. Like Notre Dame, there's a lot less of that to the point where it didn't even really dawn on me until I got to your final assessment part to consider, Oh yeah. Like, there is a different coaching staff coaching these next 12 games this year. What kind of negative or positive impact will that have? And no, I, I'm with you. I mean, I think whatever the Vegas over under win total ends up being 
probably would have been higher with Brian Kelly um, from a predictive standpoint, just because we know what you're going to get out of him. Yeah. Most like, like, we're probably talking like a half game higher. Like right. Not, but I'm just yeah. saying like, it wouldn't but be higher. worse. Um, no. You know, again, the coach who wins the games he's supposed to win, Notre Dame's supposed to win a lot of them, even if they're not supposed to win as many this year because of the nature of the competition. Um, that being said, I mean, what year 13, it would have been for Brian Kelly. At some point, messages start falling flat um, or good point. Or human nature kicks in. And it, I'm sure that part of that kicked into Brian Kelly's calculus when he decided to, to move on elsewhere as well, as far as like, do I just want to roll the ball out and win 10, 11, maybe 12 games again and get cream to the playoff? Or do I want to go challenge myself? I, like I'm 60. I've got a lot of years left of me. Do I go try something new? So you know, how does the team respond to a new coaching staff is probably the biggest question in that regard. And, how does this coaching staff basically scheme their way to wins? Because Brian Kelly was really good at that when the talent was equal or lesser. Um, I don't think there's any out scheming Ohio state or Clemson. If, if their players are playing at their best um, against you on a given Saturday. So we'll, we'll see what happens, but you know, no question the opener um, Clemson Clemson. You know, it's going to be very interesting, especially at that point in the year. Uh, and then USC, which I also think given the, the time of the year it's at. Um, that's obviously incredibly better roster than it was last year. I still have my question marks about them from a, you know, offensive and defense line standpoint. And especially in the last game of the year, like you just don't know what that's going to look like. No, I mean, it's the USC, I believe that ESPN has so many metrics. I, I couldn't tell you what's <laughs> what, um, but I think one of them has them ahead of Notre Dame. But then the S&P Plus, Bill Conley's metric, has them like at 51st. So I, I have no idea what they're going to look like. And what they're going to look like in August is going to be totally different than what they're going to look like in, in November, the, regardless. The Pac-12, I mean, look, Oregon ain't going to be Oregon with a new I don't think they'll be Oregon with a new coach. Um, I don't think Utah will be as good as they were last year, although they'll still probably be the favorites. Uh, the Pac-12 just announced like their conference championship game is going to be the two best teams, not by division. Um, in which case, like USC will already have their fate probably decided um, going into that Notre Dame game, um, whether the first or second best team in the Pac-12. I, I just there are a lot of you know intriguing question marks around that program. As far as we all know, they're going to be a lot better. We all know they're. I mean, if they're not Pac-12 champions within two or three years, I'd, I'd be shocked. I think the question is, can they get there this quickly? Right. Um, and if so, what's that mean for for Notre Dame and what position Notre Dame is in? going into that final game of the year. We got a long off season, but uh, thank God that uh, we have a new coaching staff to talk about for the next two or three months, because th- I think that will, that's going to carry the the day quite a bit. I got a question on another podcast about um, somebody asked, how much does Marcus Freeman make your job harder? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh. You, have, you, have, you have that exactly opposite. Yes. And it was in reference to like, how he's recruiting so hard. He's traveling all over the place. I'm like, no, 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 no. It creates this entire new library of stories oh, to do. The access, the, the, the additional yeah. storylines, the refresh, refreshing, you know, voices, if you will. Like I, you know, last week at the, uh, you know, when the Jimbo Fisher thing happened, people, I, I was at a family event over the weekend. Oh, is this a slow time of the year for you? I'm like, normally it would be right now. It's not. Uh, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Like for business purposes, this college football offseason, both Notre Dame and otherwise, have been 
freaking yeah, mana from heaven. Like it's from, yeah. From the second I walked out of the Stanford press box, like the off season <laughs> has almost been more interesting than the season itself. I don't even know if that's an almost, right? It's, it is way more interesting. It's than more interesting in, in some ways, like games are like vacation, you know, like you go to a game, yeah. you're about a game, like that's pretty damn simple. Um, I don't even worry about getting anyone on the phone on a random Monday. Like it's, it's, I, I, I love it all. Uh, but it, it, the, the, the calculus is kind of flipped in that regard. It's like May and I'm like, oh wait, there are only so many months left to do my off season legwork slash maybe take a vacation before camp opens up in August. Yeah. So let's let's set a date for a, a user generated podcast. We're gonna do one next week, post Memorial Day. I don't know what your schedule is like, but we should definitely uh, works get that for out of me. Um yeah, there's the SEC is doing their meetings next week. I almost want to. I mean, like, what's going to happen there? Until after, right? <laughs> <laughs> but some sometime in the next couple of weeks, uh, at post Memorial Day for sure, we will do sort of a, a live Q and A podcast with our listeners. So uh, keep an eye out for that. We will advertise because we know it works based on our Fiesta Bowl performance. Um, we'll advertise it a little bit more than we did last time. So hopefully, we can have more listeners and we could just all sort of. Hang out in one happy audio family for an hour or two. And we all know um, now where and what time Notre Dame's opener will be. 7.30 on oh my uh, goodness. ABC. Which- yes. Yeah, sp- speaking of live uh, podcasts, I, it's already under discussion that me, you, Bill Landis, and Ari Wasserman, who was a Ohio State B reporter for us before he become a uh, recruiting analyst firebrand type, but uh, do a live podcast in Columbus on Friday night before the game. You're in for this? I am absolutely in for this. We okay. do, we'll make it two years in a row. They're in uh, Dublin the following year. <laughs> you're, you're saying instead of uh, Ari and Bill coming to South Bend and doing it, uh, we'll actually have to do it in Dublin? Well, me and you will do it in Dublin. Um, okay. So open 2023. But yeah, they can do it in South Bend um, the following year as well. Maybe we'll show up to as that far one, as, so. as far as I'm concerned. Okay. All right. Well, that's, we'll wrap up on that for this episode of The Shamrock. Again, we'll do sort of the live podcast coming up in the next couple of weeks, post-Memorial Day. Um, Matt, I'm sure we'll have a few more SEC exposés based on the uh, the meetings coming up for that. So keep an eye out for that if you like drama, which I know we all do. So until our next pod, he's Matt. I'm Pete. Thanks for being with us on the latest episode of The Shamrock. Shamrock.